This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. Up next are the takeaways and tips from the hands-on investor, High Engagement Investing with John Greathouse. So great to get John's perspective. Let's recap the key takeaways. Number one is called Building Institutional Mass. John stated that the single biggest impact a VC can have at the early stages is on recruiting. He stressed the importance of putting the right person in the right company at the right time. It can be a big challenge to recruit top talent and build a team very early on. John focuses on roles that can help address the key company objectives. Needs will vary by business type, but he mentioned a sales leader, a marketing leader, and a financial person to manage payables and receivables. And the primary way that John helps is by using his network to find great candidates, and he actually conducts the interviews to vet individuals and find the right team for his portfolio startups. Key takeaway number two is called types of involvement. John talked about different ways that he gets involved, including on the marketing side, on the sales side, executive leadership, from an alignment standpoint, and then finally on learnings he's had from previous challenges. I wanted to review some of those. Let's start with marketing. John aims to drive inbound over outbound marketing through methods like content marketing. He referred to this as earned marketing instead of paid marketing. How do you get customers to come to you instead of just hitting them with advertising? The second point was around sales. With regards to sales, John encourages founders to not be afraid of hiring salespeople in front of revenue. Sometimes the entrepreneur needs to be pushed a little to spend money. Part of what got them to the stage where they can take venture funding is that they bootstrapped and were very frugal. This is a great characteristic, but can make it hard to change the mentality and spend the money when it's the right time to spend. The third type of involvement was around executive leadership. For the first 12 to 18 months, John will act as an adjunct member of the executive team, not only offering strategic advice, but also getting hands-on on the marketing and tactical actions. As the company scales and fills in the executive seats around the table, the interaction becomes less frequent, moving from weekly calls to one every couple weeks and then maybe one per month. The next point John made was about alignment. The smaller number of investments one makes, the more engaged they can be. Maybe Rincon is not going to be the highest valuation, but they will really put in the work to help achieve the milestones, and they will even align themselves from an equity standpoint with the entrepreneurs so that everyone has the same agenda. 
And the final point here is called learning from previous challenges. John also talked about how with their focus on B2B SaaS, they see a similar set of challenges, especially on the marketing side. And for many founders, this will be their first time encountering these challenges. So John is able to leverage learnings from the portfolio and help new companies navigate their marketing challenges. All right, the third and final takeaway is called level of involvement. John and I discussed the number of companies in which he can be highly engaged. He said that typically comes in as an investor at the 40 to 50K per month range in MRR, where the company will be well on their way to achieving $1 million in annual revenue. And as these portfolio companies grow from one to five million, Rincon is very involved and interaction is at the weekly level. A manageable number of portcos at this stage, from John's standpoint, is four to six. Now, when a startup reaches the five to $10 million range in annual revenue, this is when they begin stepping back and working at the biweekly or monthly level of involvement. And the appropriate number for them is another four to six port codes at this stage. And finally, post $10 million in annual revenue, the startup has reached that growth phase and they begin working more with growth stage investors. This is where John's level of interaction scales back to participation in quarterly board meetings only. Okay, let's wrap up with our tip of the week. And this week's tip is called Hardware as an Anchor. In today's discussion, we talked about Rincon's specialty in B2B SaaS and the reliable, fast-growing revenue streams that can be created in that segment. This got me thinking about products and business models that create long-term streams of reliable and sticky revenue. And while we talked a bit about software, I wanted to take this week's tip to touch on hardware. And one of the best models that I have used myself is the Razor Razor Blade model. I suspect most of you are familiar with this. If not, simply the model is to sell a foundational product that uses a consumable with some recurring frequency. It's called the Razor Razor Blade model because that solution typifies the model. Sell a razor into a set of customers that then have to purchase consumables, i.e. blades, on a regular basis. Gillette doesn't make their money on razors, but they make a fortune on the blades. Other common examples are printers and printer cartridges, or a Keurig coffee machine, and the pods. Once an installed base of machines exists in the marketplace, the consumable revenue stream is very predictable and very high margin. I'd like to take a minute to walk you through a personal example of a product development that fits this model. Just before I embarked on startup investing full-time, I spent three years developing a product. From the ideation and requirements definition stage through concept testing, development, pre-selling, and launch. It was a very involved process that gives me enormous appreciation for entrepreneurs developing breakthrough products. This product was for the water testing market. If you think about a drinking water facility in your city, their goal is to stay off the front page of the newspaper. They do not want people dying from unsafe water. So they treat drinking water extensively and then send it out through the plumbing distribution systems all the way to your home. But while the water is traveling through the system, it can become compromised and the disinfectants in the water can wear off. So every municipality has to send employees out in their trucks 
to travel all throughout the water distribution system and run a series of chemistry tests at many different nodes. A city as large as Chicago or San Francisco employs whole fleets of people to conduct this testing at thousands of endpoints every day. This data also has to be reported with some frequency to the EPA. In the existing process, a worker would perform three to seven different chemistry tests at each node. They may be testing for chlorine, fluoride, nitrites, ammonias, pH, etc. Each of these different chemistry tests involves measuring, mixing powders, chemicals, timing, and a series of other workflow steps, which all had potential to introduce inefficiency and errors in the results. Try and imagine a guy working with small powder packets and tiny liquid bottles measuring to the microliter on the back of his truck in sub-freezing Chicago winters. Then he'd write all the results on a clipboard and move to the next testing location. You can probably imagine this is a very costly and labor-intensive exercise fraught with errors in the data. The vision was a future in which the water testing data was 99% reliable and acquired in a fraction of the time. And that's what we developed. Small, microfluidic chips, as we called them, that had all the chemistry reagents and water mixing channels captive within the consumable. And also a base instrument with all the mixing cycles, heating, measuring, and GPS track data all built and programmed in. It was a product that transferred steps from human to machine and automated the workflow. And on top of the hard products, the data management for the device was a soft solution upsell, functioning as a B2B SaaS product and revenue stream. So it became a Razor Razor Blade plus SaaS. While our product development team was surrounded by skeptics throughout the organization, the naysayers have now become big believers. It's amazing how sales success in the market can change the rhetoric almost overnight. While the process of raising capital, defining requirements, doing thousands of customer interviews, and executing a very complicated R&D effort was the biggest challenge I've ever encountered, it was also the most rewarding. And hardware products, in general, are tough. One can't just change or fix something post-launch with a line of code. And many investors I know avoid hardware altogether. It's expensive, difficult to develop, can be a channel and logistics nightmare, and is inflexible. But circling back to the Razor Razor Blade concept, if the product is revolutionary and encourages regular use, it can be very lucrative. This is not a one-time product sale. It's an annuity. The product sale is not the end of a low-margin revenue stream, It's the beginning of a high-margin, repeatable one. And a key benefit here is that once a hardware product is placed with a customer, it becomes embedded. As easy as it is to replace an app from the home screen of a smartphone, it's an order of magnitude harder to convince customers to replace a physical device. Install-base inertia makes the leaky bucket customer funnel much less leaky. So before dismissing those hardware startups from consideration, I consider things from a SaaS perspective. Is the product a cost anchor, a one-time widget sale that a customer will end up using as a paperweight, or is it a revenue anchor where each sale is the beginning of a healthy, sticky, high-margin annuity? 
Up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode Startup Boards with Mahendra Ramsinghani. So awesome getting Mahendra on the program. Let's recap the key takeaways. Number one is called the early group of mentors. Mahendra's position is that one doesn't need a formal board early on, but he does advocate assembling a group of mentors to guide the business and help make sure the entrepreneur doesn't waste a lot of time. Just having to report on status once a month to an outsider forces one to measure, show progress, and think about the business from the perspective of an outsider. It makes the entrepreneur do things in a disciplined manner that they wouldn't otherwise do. And it also allows the founder to learn how to articulate both the wins and the losses. This can serve as great practice for standard reporting and also the storytelling that will come when a founder goes through a fundraise. The second key takeaway is called meeting dynamics and expectations. On cadence, Mahendra advised to set meetings up front upon closing the investment. Agree together on what the right meeting frequency is for the next 12 months and get everything on the calendar. He also suggested to build the board meeting around a meal. And the purpose of the meal is not just the entrepreneur-investor relationship. It's about the relationship between investors. The goal is to assemble a board of people that are comfortable and friendly enough with one another to put their own agendas aside and focus on the fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders. And finally, key takeaway number three here is board roles and responsibilities. Mahendra discussed how a board's role shifts between the early phase and the growth financing phase. After the professional round of capital, the focus should be on product development and financing. He mentioned two critical KPIs to measure. Number one was launch timing. When is the development phase complete and what does the launch cycle look like? And number two was cash timing. How much cash is in the bank and how many months of life does that give us? Then we discussed how at the second stage, there is a shift from managing for launch to managing for growth. Here, the board should be focused on sales. When seats are awarded, the founder and existing board should be looking for people with growth expertise or customer relationships. And the number of board members, typically an odd number, may increase from three to five to seven as the startup progresses from pre-product to growth to scale and more shareholders are introduced. And from a functional standpoint, we covered the decisions that are within board jurisdiction versus those that are not. The simple rule for a founder is to ask, is this an operational decision or an equity decision? Anything that affects the financing or cap table is a board decision. Everything else is the founding team's decision. And Mahendra's one caveat here is that while major operational or business decisions are the responsibility of the startup, it's always good to keep the board apprised of these decisions and get their blessing. When Tom Tungus was on the program, he discussed his role as a decision auditor. If one thinks of their board as a strategic consulting group, that serves as an experienced and insightful sounding board that can be a major asset to the business. Let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and this week's tip is called the Board Meeting Update Report. A well-run, productive board meeting is often the exception and not the rule. This can be due to board members that get off topic or spend too much time on non-critical issues. But any good board meeting begins with structure, and this is largely driven by the entrepreneur. 
And as an investor, it's best to establish not only the board meeting frequency, but also the expectation of what will be reviewed. For many founders, this will be their first experience working with a board. So I wanted to take this week's tip to break down the components and items that should be included and reviewed in an efficient board meeting. First off, the format by which the information delivered is not as important. This often could be a standard Word doc, a PowerPoint, or just an email report. It's the components included that really matter. First off is the summary. Most material on best practices here advises to start off with a summary. How did the last quarter go? What major wins and losses did the business experience? Are there a few key data points, driving success or failure, that should be called out? This section should be brief, concise, and may consist of a few sentences and a few bullets. The second component of a strong board review should be an operational update. This serves as a high-level status report of the major areas of the business, including financials, product, KPIs, and team. I'm going to touch on each of these areas and some of the key questions that should be answered with regards to each. The first is the financial overview. What is the cash position? What's the fume date? How much is being burned per month? Are there any key hiring or office decisions that will alter burn going forward? The next major area is a product overview. What's the launch status? Has product market fit been achieved? What key product changes have or will be made? Does the current embodiment of the product allow for mass market access? One should think about the critical product objectives and include them here. The next area of overview is on KPIs. What are the top three to five things that are most critical to business success? Where is the business at currently versus the original forecast or plan? What do the next 12 months look like? What's at risk? When will the new plan numbers be established? An overview of the major KPIs and the progress to date may end up consuming a significant portion of the meeting. And the final major area in the operational review is the team overview. So what are the key positions that need to be filled in the startup? What profile is desired in open executive roles? Why are these hiring decisions necessary? And what KPIs will they impact? Recall John Greathouse's comments in a recent episode that the single biggest contribution of the early stage investor is to help recruit and build a great team. Okay, we've now talked about the summary section and the operational review section. The next major part of the board meeting update report is the strategic review. This is where the founder lays out the three major action items and initiatives for the business. Why are they critical? What is the desired outcome or objective of each? How can a board help in driving these to completion? Often these key initiatives will be related to the KPIs that are being reviewed. If not, the founder and the board may need to think about adding or switching one of the existing KPIs to line up with the key objectives for the business. So what are examples of these key initiatives? Depending on the stage and business type, they could be launching the product on time and budget, customer acquisition and cost per acquisition, expanding net new MRR, increasing engagement and use amongst existing customer sets, margin expansion via cost reductions in direct materials or direct labor, 
optimizing pricing strategy for either maximum market penetration or maximum margin dollars. The list goes on. There are numerous key objectives for early stage startups that will evolve and change over their life cycle. And the founder can set these initiatives themselves or with the board's input. It's not unusual for these to be a combination of the most critical items to the health and expansion of the business and also the key growth objectives that the next round of investors will be looking for. And this doesn't have to be the first time that the investor group ever sees the material. If there are areas of concern or areas in which a specific board member can help, it's always great when the entrepreneur reaches out one-to-one in advance of the board meeting to discuss these areas and get input. Debates in a board meeting are fine, but there should never be an adversarial divide between the CEO and the board members. And a final thought here is on board meeting minutes. While it's good to have a record of items discussed, minutes are really only useful as a reference. It's often better to focus on actions and decisions. At the top of every good minute report is a dated section of key decisions made. I can't tell you how frustrating it can be to regularly revisit major decision items when nothing material has changed. Record the agreed-upon decisions and give those focus by including them at the top of the report. And of course, it's best to explicitly identify the individuals, their actions, and in some cases, the date by which those actions need to be closed. Whether it's an observer, an advisor, or a director, if they offer to help, that action should be included. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company, or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode, Algorithms as a Competitive Advantage with Andrew Parker. That episode was just packed full of information. Thanks so much to Andrew for doing it. Let's recap the key takeaways. And on this installment of key takeaways, I'm going to review four different takeaways. The first one is on evaluating a technical founder's expertise. 
Andrew said that he assesses technical founders by treating them like a black box. One way he does this is to look at the outcome of their work. What is the raw product they've produced? If there is value in the algorithm, that should be transparent in the product execution. Another method is to assess one's thought leadership in code. A primary way to evaluate this is by checking GitHub to see the frequency of their published code and how well it's reviewed and cited by other coders. And Andrew's last point here is that he is largely language and stack agnostic. He said that the best computer scientists are strongly rooted in programming paradigms that transcend all languages. So if they're really good, they're going to be able to pick up the language they need for the task at hand. Key takeaway number two is called data as a competitive advantage during early stage startup assessment. During early stage review, Andrew first asks, is the startup creating a new market or entering an existing one? If it's the creation of a new market, it's not clear how data is going to help. There must be imagination, faith, and a compelling founder vision, a great founder to be able to evangelize that vision, and an audience that believes in the vision. And here Andrew said that the audience doesn't have to be the customer. The audience could be the investors or even the startup employees. I hadn't thought of this point before, but I think it's a great one that talking to the startup's employees and not just the founders prior to an investment can give some insight on how much others also believe and are passionate about the vision. Key takeaway number three is called public algorithms and private source data. On this point, Andrew encourages companies to publish what they're doing openly. He's found that the more you give away, the more you get back. And by publishing an algorithm open source, others will contribute to it and make the idea better faster. And if the source data itself remains proprietary while the community is helping improve the algorithm, then the startup's competitive advantage compounds. Here he cited examples including Google's publishing of their machine learning framework TensorFlow while retaining the source data around searches and other web activity in their data archive. All right, the fourth and final takeaway is called Continuous Feedback Loop of SaaS. In the era of shelfware, most software wasn't internet-enabled and didn't have a method for improving user experience based on collective experience of other users. This is why SaaS works so well for data and algorithm-focused startups, because both the value the product delivers and the innovation on the product side doesn't stop upon launch. Rather, after launch, the product can increase in value at a compounding rate. And this also allows the startup to increase both the top line and bottom line of the business over time by increasing the price per month of the SaaS product. If they are, in fact, increasing the value of the product, this is realistic. Recall the interview with Mamoon Hamid on SaaS investing, where we talked about net new MRR. One component of this metric is expansion MRR, more dollars per month generated for existing customers. Whether expansion MRR is being driven by new feature sets, enhanced capabilities, or just a better core product offering, it's clear that the compounding value of data can be a force multiplier. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and this week's tip is called Data as a Network Effect. We all talk about sources of defensibility. How is a startup going to retain its competitive advantage for the long term? 
Why can't someone else just copy an idea? There are a number of sources of defensibility, and one frequently cited by Union Square Ventures and mentioned by Andrew today is the network effect. There are even a few different types of network effects. Consider for a second Facebook. Facebook is not an entirely complicated technology company, yet it's not an idea that can be readily copied. Why is that? Because even if a better version of Facebook was launched tomorrow, the users are not going to jump ship for a new network. Their pictures, conversations, and most importantly, friend relationships exist with long history in Facebook. Today, we discussed how data can function as a network effect. Andrew said, as startups get more data, the value of the startup starts to compound, and the way the data is processed creates more value than the sum of the data itself. Recall from the episode with Leo Polovets where he cited the example of Netflix. While Netflix built value based on their product offering, delivering media in a faster, easier, and more informative way to consumers, they can now defend it via the value created from their vast amount of data. So while Netflix does not have a network effect based on direct friend relationships between users, they do have an indirect user-based network effect from the star reviews and ratings. Imagine a future of ubiquitous data on preferences. Not just where a tech company can tell you which movies you're going to like, but one that can tell you which car to buy, which restaurants to go to, which meal on the menu you'll like best, which articles to read, which apps to download, and what podcasts to listen to. While the world is in a constant state of change, it's even conceivable that a smart machine with access to incredible amounts of data will be able to predict what a 20-year-old's preferences will be when they are 30, 40, or 50 years old. The examples of advances from big data are limitless. And as long as there are large tech companies developing new algorithms, machine learning, and holding the keys to the source data, our network effect dependence on them will only increase. That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.